I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City. And joining me today is my friend, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back to the program. Hey, Abby. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to see you. I'm excited about this article today because it was actually recommended by Rachel Quedno and is a topic that we don't often talk about. And it is entitled Tackling Rural America's Hidden Homeless Crisis. This was published in the Daily Yonder by Taylor Sisk and Jan Patelski. So according to the article, the rate of homelessness and housing insecurity over the past two years increased by almost 6% in rural communities compared with the less than half percent increase nationwide. Rural homelessness, according to the authors, tends to be more hidden than what is seen in larger metropolitan areas in this context. It is expressed through housing insecurity, couch surfing, and even roommate arrangements. Rural areas cannot necessarily even dream of building themselves out of this problem. Wages are often stagnant, and the cost to construct new buildings is higher than what most people can afford, while large-scale developers in urban areas will benefit from economies of scale to decrease the cost per unit of housing. Rural areas tend to really not see large-scale development in those areas, and what gets built can tend to be more expensive. So the article shares examples of how some communities have risen to this challenge and a few examples of really temporary housing arrangements that are being implemented. Organizations like United Community Action Network in Oregon operate temporary housing shelters that provide air conditioning, heat, a place to store personal items, and a shared kitchen facility. They are currently expanding their facility by renovating a nearby building, and that's going to include an additional 30 beds, which will really just make a dent in their current wait list of 136 people. Over in Kentucky, the Kentucky River Community Care Organization has worked to combine resources from eight counties to execute what they call big city type projects to provide housing for people with mental and behavioral health issues. So really a a different approach to what we're seeing in Oregon. But really, according to the article, the extreme housing shortage and shortage of affordable housing is the primary source of homelessness. And that's really particular to rural areas, but probably that idea could be applied probably nationwide. They recommend this temporary housing first program to address the lack of new supply that you see in these areas. And there's really this kind of uh, conclusion that I took out of the article, which was the idea that in rural America, homelessness is this very localized community-based problem that can be best solved by local community-based organizations. Really, all the organizations are people who are on the ground working with people on a day-to-day basis, and it's really a housing-first approach. So 
I, I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you about as we start is whether or not Strong Towns has a perspective on the housing first approach and really an approach to addressing homelessness issues in communities, particularly rural areas. That's an interesting question because the logic behind the housing first idea is really sound, right? It, it's hard to it's hard to help people in other aspects of their lives when they don't have a house. And you can say, you know, we'll, we'll help people get a job. Great. If you don't have a place to go home to at the end of the day, it's really hard to keep that job. Uh, we'll help people get uh, other assistance, tuition assistance, job assistance, education assistance, whatever. If you are housing insecure, like a lot of those things become meaningless. I feel like the interesting thing here is really this dichotomy between urban and, and rural. The, the urban homelessness problem is so, I don't want to say unavoidable, but like you can't not see it, right? When you visit an urban area, it is there. Even in Minneapolis-St. Paul, where I live, which is extremely cold and difficult. I mean, cold, cold weather places tend to have a, a different experience with homelessness than warm weather places because it is almost impossible to live when it's 30 below outside. And it kind of changes the dynamics of people living in those places in a way that you can exist in warmer climates without a home in, in a different way. That being said, even in Minneapolis-St. Paul, in the depths of winter, homelessness is impossible to ignore. I mean, it is, it is very there in a way that when you live in a small town, when you live in a rural area, you don't experience. And I think there's a lot of us who live in smaller places. Mine is a city of 14,000. I think there's a lot of us that would like to believe that we do not have a homeless problem. But, you know, we have for a long time had a shelter in our city. Um, my wife actually volunteers at it uh, and is going, I think, tonight or tomorrow. And it's always full. I mean, it is, you know, a couple dozen beds and it's always full and it's full in the depths of winter. There's a lot of it there that doesn't show up in the way it does in urban areas. I, I think the thing that I would maybe point out that this article touches on but doesn't get real deep in is the truly small cities. There is really nothing in place to help people beyond just the generosity of neighbors and friends and community. And sometimes that is great. Sometimes that is beautiful, but oftentimes it's just not, it's just not enough. If you go to a city much smaller than mine, there will not be the resources in place. There will not be the the kind of safety net in place, either from a government standpoint or a, a charitable standpoint, to address these things at scale. And so in rural areas, you already have a poverty problem. And housing affordability, like in my city, is has never really been a problem of high housing prices, although there's some places where that, that's an issue. But housing affordability in my city has always been about poor people. People are too impoverished to afford even poor homes. When you go to cities a lot smaller and a lot more rural than mine, that gets magnified to a large degree. And we see a lot of people who live in trailer houses and live in storage sheds and live in very substandard types of housing that, you know, in, in urban areas uh, wouldn't, wouldn't even exist or wouldn't be allowed. And then we see a, a layer of people who... Uh, can't even get into those types of things. 
And so, yeah, the, the rural experience across much of this country is very, very, there's a, there's a portion of it that is very desperate. And I would even say that level of desperation is often more urgent than what we see in urban areas where there is a lot of obviously housing insecurity, but it intersects with a lot more things in, in rural areas. There's really no you know, safety net in a lot of places to deal with this issue. Yeah, I think urgency is the right word there. There seemed in this article to be this really high awareness and I don't want to say acceptance, but I don't have a better word for it right now of this fact that the demand for new construction really doesn't exist in these areas to even add supply to to their current market. And that seems to be an important part of the discussion because this recognition means that there are there are approaches that are needed that are more iterative, temporary, incremental, which a lot of the examples they talked about really kind of fit that fit within that that framework. And in large metropolitan areas, and I know you live in a smaller town, I live in a larger city, not a big city, but a larger city. But I feel that in large urban areas, we are more orientated to having big problems, permanent solutions, large developments. And that's kind of the perspective that is put onto the homelessness issue that that we're going to have some big program that is going to you know solve the problem and and even if these don't solve the problem there seems to be a, a different expectation of how this is addressed whereas in this article it's very much oriented around people on the ground nonprofit organizations it seems to be a lot less anonymous than than how you might think of these organizations and how they interact with communities maybe in larger cities although i don't know if that's truly the case it did seem like there was this implied cultural disposition in how housing insecurity is perceived and addressed in rural areas can i say it in a different way and yeah. I, I i fear that this will make some people angry and so I'm going to preface it by saying I run a nonprofit organization. I draw a salary from that. I think that there are two aspects of that. The first is that the work we're doing is for the public good, thus our nonprofit designation. And, you know, I get up every day saying I'm working to change cities and make them better places. But I also draw a salary. It's, it is my job. And it would be very difficult to do what I do with Strong Towns, particularly to the extent that I do it, without it being my job where I could draw a salary. Now, in the early days of Strong Towns, this was all a passion project, evenings and weekends kind of thing. It has grown into something else. I preface it that saying I'm, this is not a critique that I'm going to give, but it's an observation. In Kansas City, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, in large urban areas, there are many people whose job is to assist the homeless. Right? Their, their job is to provide for people who have housing insecurity. In most rural areas, including in my city, that is nobody's job. Nobody has that job. So here in Brainerd, my hometown, there's a group uh, that was affiliated with a bunch of local churches that got together and said, we are going to house homeless people in churches on a rotating basis. So Monday night is uh, this Lutheran church over here and Tuesday night's the Methodist church and Wednesday night's the Catholic church. 
Over time, that grew and expanded now to where this group actually rents a space and has purchased cots or gotten cots donated and all this and put in. And they operate this space in the evenings overnight. So at eight o'clock, you can check in, you have to check out by eight in the morning. The volunteers go in and help log people in. There's someone there who's overnight in case something happens. All of this is volunteer. This is nobody's job. Nobody gets paid to do this. And so what happens? And and I think we could go really deep into, into a, a conversation about culture today. Uh, and, and maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. But I, I do feel like this is one of those places where progressive urban areas and conservative rural areas diverge in their sensitivities. If you are in Minneapolis-St. Paul or Kansas City, and you do not have strong churches, strong institutions, strong synagogues, a whole layer of what conservatives would call intermediary institutions, um, that's fine because you can address these problems through local government or through other types of programs that are large where it's someone's job to do this. If, if you are in a rural area and you don't have those things, you don't have those things, right? Like if, if we did not have a, a series of churches in my community working on this stuff, it would not happen. It would not be the case. And so I think a lot of times when rural people lament the loss of religion, the loss of church, the loss of community, the loss of the, the, the there's, there's, it's not just like, well, people are not saying the Ten Commandments anymore, or we, you know, we, we don't say the pledge anymore. There's this kind of deep dysfunction within the community that is alleviated or propped up or addressed by having these intermediary institutions. And there just really isn't, I mean, let's pretend that we wanted the state government to do this. It would be really hard in everyone. I mean, we can't even run post office in all these small towns. It would be really, really hard to have someone whose job is to, you know, in a city of 500, deal with the four people who are housing insecure. I mean, that'd be really, really hard to do. Yet that is a high percentage of the population. I'm trying to put this in context because I, I think rural areas struggle in a way that is very unique from urban areas. And often that creates this dissonance where people in rural areas like don't understand why are there, you know, why are there homeless tent encampments in Minneapolis, St. Paul? It must be because progressives don't know how to run government or, you know, like people don't care. And because in order to address those problems in rural areas, we, we don't, we have to use different tools. And the tools are the ones where I think people often in urban areas will look at rural areas and say, you, you, all you care about is your, you know, your church and your, your tribe and all the, all the kind of, you know, uh, nasty, regressive, stick up for your own kind of rural uh, things that, that are looked down upon. And I get that critique, but I also live here and recognize that without those institutions, a, a lot of things, housing being one, the related issues of drug and alcohol abuse and uh, spousal abuse and, you know, things that are related to that uh, would also largely be unaddressed. Yeah, it seems like it really boils down to perception in a lot of ways, because I think in, in in urban areas, I'm sure that churches play some role in all of those different issues. But I, I don't know that people largely perceive them as this like 
really critical institution that that needs to continue doing this kind of work, maybe with the nonprofits, because the nonprofits are more visible, I guess. There's tons of nonprofits. They're typically concentrated in one area of the city that has a lot of the homeless population. When when you were describing the sheltering happening from place to place to place at different churches in a small town setting, I, I could easily picture that because the churches are not going to be that far away from each other. You can no, they're walk all, within. They're all up the street, right? Yeah, they're they're all close by in that setting. And I was trying to extrapolate that in my mind to, you know, if Kansas City did that with all of their different churches and like, you know, that it's such a larger scale that doing something like that just doesn't, it's a totally different context. Yes, you could have people take the bus 30 minutes over here and then 30 minutes the other way the next day, but it just wouldn't be workable in the way that it is in a small town. So I I just think that the relationship between how you address these kinds of issues in the place that you're in is very important. And an interesting perspective that came out of the article that I had not thought about before. I I thought it was interesting the way they were kind of defining homelessness and talking about how it is hidden. They were talking about how, you know, it's expressed in couch surfing and housing insecurity. and, And I think outcomes that are different than what you usually see in a big city, which are people in tents, people on the side of the road begging for money. And I actually dug up an article that was written by Rachel Quedno, shout out, back in 2020, where she talked about the different types of homelessness, one being chronic, the other being temporary. And this article did seem to dip in that discussion without really teasing out the differences between the two, which I feel like it's kind of important because the interventions that they discuss seems to be more aligned with, you know, it's a, they talk about housing first. It's like, you know, meeting people where they're at as they're becoming housing insecure or couch surfing or, which is very different than I think the other end of the spectrum, which is long-term housing facilities where robust services are available, whether that's for like, physical or mental health issues, and really two different approaches are needed, I think, to address these issues in any context, because there's so many different reasons why people may be housing insecure or or homeless chronically. We have a, a number of people here who are temporarily homeless or temporarily without, and often you'll see them go the couch surfing route or rely on friends or sleep in their car or what have you. I do know that some of the churches around here offer, in a sense, temporary living places. And and these are often filled up by people who, let me give what I see as the most common example. This is not all of them, but uh, so I'm not trying to insinuate that. But a lot of times it's women who are going through a divorce who have to get away from a spouse and essentially, like one of the local churches will find them a place to stay. Is there a parishioner who can take them in for a day or two? Is there a place where, you know, it, we're in Minnesota, so there's a lot of people, particularly older people who go south for the winter. Is there an empty house somewhere that someone could move into for a week or two and take care of? 
you know, where someone could keep an eye on it, that kind of thing. And there's a network of people here amongst the churches. And I'm, I'm speaking because this is a network I know. I, I'm sure there are other people doing other things, but they, they all tend to interact with the, the church network in some way, uh, not be like wholly secular. And, you know, people will be brought in and often, you know, if it is a woman in a divorce situation or a tense marital situation, they're almost like sequestered, like hidden, right? Like we're going to keep you safe here along with giving you your, yeah, along with giving you some shelter. But there are people who have the long-term issue too. And I, I do think, you know, for us, they tend to be people who move on because it's really, it's almost impossible here to be long-term housing insecure. But if you have lost your job, if you are in a sense unemployable, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why someone might be unemployable, but if you're unemployable, we can build all the houses that we want around here. We could lower the price of, I mean, you you can get into a house here for a ridiculously low price compared to what, I mean, I'll just give a number. You can buy a house in Brainerd for $60,000, $80,000. I mean, I think most people would be like, what? And that's not like, I mean, it's not a great house, but it's shelter and it's not going to fall down and it's not going to be rat infested. I mean, it will actually be like a house that would meet the building code and be building spec. For people who are, are chronically homeless, it doesn't matter how low that price is, they're not going to be able to get into it. They're not going to be able to get the mortgage, get the loan, get it secured, hold a job, all that. There's other things. And so I think if we want to acknowledge that and want that group of people to be part of our community, we do have to find a way to get beyond the temporary shelter, the temporary thing, and get a path to getting them in uh, something that would then allow them to address the other issues in their lives, whether that be an alcohol drug addiction, whether that be difficulty holding and sustaining a job, whether that is a bad credit history, whatever that is, and start rectifying those things. But again, in rural areas, that is all done in this layer of what I think we would think of as like a private charitable thing with perhaps you know, with, with some public social backing in key places and key points, but it's really dependent on that web of what we just call generosity from people. Yeah. Yeah. Because that type of chronic homelessness, the approach that is needed is more of an institutional caregiver situation, whether that is a, you know, just a supervised housing kind of facility or something that is more robust and has long-term, you know, people on on site available to help people if they're disabled or have some kind of mental condition. Uh, so when I think of that kind of approach, it seems more likely that you're going to see that in a larger metropolitan area. And if that were to be built somewhere, it's not going to be in the middle of a rural area or right. far away in a small town. I mean, I, let me give you an example. I have a cousin who runs, I, I feel like I'm talking small town here and I'm going to tick off like a whole bunch of people. What else is new? Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> you know, the way we talk about things would be different. She runs drunk houses is what we call them. And the, she calls it that. These are, beautiful, compassionate places where people, almost exclusively men, who generally are 
coming through divorce or what have you, but have gone and sought alcohol treatment, treatment for alcoholism, can move to temporarily uh, a month, three months, six months. It's not meant to be long-term housing, but move temporarily. Live with other men in a environment where the whole goal is to support your recovery. And I'll just say, part of living in this place is that you have to be serious about your recovery. And if you're not, they kick you out. And now you are homeless. This is, again, part of the rural experience, right? There's, there's always a, um, you know, an expectation along with the generosity. So come here, live. Depending on where you're at in your recovery, we will either ask you to get a job or not or help you in that or move you. Because the, the goal is to move you to something where you would not be in, in this role anymore, uh, in this dependency role. But the idea is to help you and give you space and allow you to recover from alcoholism and then reintegrate you back into the community. But if you don't stick with the program, like if you're not taking, you know, if you're bringing alcohol back to this house with a bunch of alcoholics and you're not in the program, they, they, they literally kick you out. Like my cousin has had to be like, you know, she's been like, uh, sorry, you can't, you can't live here. You have to leave. There are a lot of examples like this. And the story had some examples like this too, right? I mean, the story we're talking about. This is what the face of this looks like in in small towns. These groups will have a you know two meetings a day, I think two or three meetings a day. They start it with a prayer. They go through the twelve step process. You know, there's a whole you know support group that that grows up around these places. Um, but there's maybe half a dozen of those in the in the neighborhood here. Um, I know where some of them are because they have to come to the city and get a permit. And I've been on the planning commission when they've come in. Um, and I just know my cousin, so I know where she's, you know, the places that she's got. But um, yeah. Yeah. So it's basically like a group home situation. It's kind of like a group home, but it's it's specifically for people recovering from alcoholism. And they're expected to pay something, but I think that there's also money from the county that goes to this. So again, I think this is a, one of those kind of midway things where it kind of is my cousin. My cousin is uh, at the end of her career, so she is not fully retired, but retiring. And this is, you know, her job or part of her job um, at this point. But it's, you know, again, it's kind of one of those labors of love kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, this is really interesting. I'd, I'd love to hear more examples of things that work in this space. There's a lot of opinions and a lot of different approaches. And I feel like I don't have a great sense of what is actually working. And, you know, is there any empirical evidence for what approaches are actually going to address this problem? Because it seems to be getting worse really everywhere. And I didn't realize that it had gotten so much worse in rural areas. Yeah, rural areas, I think this has been a long-term trend, but I think right now are just so fragile in ways that it's hard to even explain or comprehend. It's just like yeah. the ridiculous levels of community-wide fragility. There's a, there's a great book, I know I've referred to it before, Alienated America by Tim Carney. And in that book, he examines Republican districts, so districts that voted for Trump in the 2016 election, but ones that voted for Trump and not for someone else in the Republican primary. And he found this huge divergence. The ones that voted for Trump tended to be the alienated places, the places without community, without like the depth of those intermediary institutions. 
And they had higher rates of crime, higher rates of drug abuse, higher rates of, of social isolation. They reported as being often being Christian, but they never went to church. So there was a affiliation, maybe spiritually, but not connection wise, human connection wise. If you went to the districts that voted for someone other than Trump in the primary, you know, you saw the opposite. You saw high school attendance, high attendance at community events, high levels of church attendance, basically these intermediary institutions that bring people together as a community and then help them by extension solve these problems and address these things together were much, much stronger. And that showed up in the way that they voted. They voted for candidates that were, you know, less alienating and more socially, you know, uh, encouraging social cohesion is how I would put it. I feel like there's an answer in there for people who are trying to understand the fragility of rural America and how we strengthen them. I feel like there's an answer in that book. Yeah, and I think that that very much relates to this article and some of the examples that the authors went through and how they were really addressing this on the ground in in kind of a grassroots sort of way, but also larger programs that were being implemented and pooling resources between multiple counties. So it all kind of seems to relate to the same ideas for sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll leave it there today. So thanks for joining me. Before we finish, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been reading, watching, listening to, just anything that's been taking up our time these days. So Chuck, I'll throw it to you for your Down Zone. So last week was our spring break week here, and my kids are both in band. They're in high school. And so they were off in New York City on band tour. My wife and I had our first like vacation with just the two of us for the last 19 years. Like we just don't do that without the kids. So we had a nice time. And then when they got back, uh, we went and looked at colleges, a second follow-up visit because the oldest one is trying to make a decision. She's much like her mom, long, thoughtful, deliberative decision-making processes. But I was told last night indirectly that she had made a decision, but hasn't told her mom yet. So she wouldn't tell me until she told her mom. I'm wearing my sweatshirt today. I don't know if you can see this. You know where she's going. <laughs> That's very exciting. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a spoiler. Yeah. I went to the University of Minnesota for my undergrad and then went back to for my graduate degree uh, there as well. My wife went to the University of Minnesota and it now appears that my oldest daughter and I've tried to be like, not pressure her into this. Like I've really said, let, let's support and find the right place for you. After going back now and experiencing it and, and having some really great conversations with people, I think she's going to go to the University of Minnesota. When does she break the news officially? Well, I believe that mom will know tonight. And so before this okay. podcast run, mom will know. And then it's just a matter of like grandma and grandpas and all that. And they can, they don't listen to this probably. Maybe they do. Maybe my mom does. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Chuck's mom. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, mom. Well, that's very exciting. She met someone from the marching band and they invited her last week when we went down, they invited her to come early and they showed her where the marching band practices, which is in the stadium, in Huntington Bank Stadium. I did not know that. And so dad got to go with and I'm just blown away because here's their practice studio. Here's all the drums. We got to like bang on drums for a while. And then we got to walk down the tunnel out to the field. And my kids like, so 
if I'm in the marching band, like I get to, oh yeah, you get to do this with uh, 40,000 plus, you know, people in the crowd. And she's like, wow. Okay. This yeah. Is that, so that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So academically, I think it's a really good fit for her. And then, uh, you know, extracurricular, it kind of feels that way too. So yeah, I didn't realize I would feel this proud about this decision. And I kind of do. Oh, you know? well, yeah. you're experiencing the opposite of what my my parents are experiencing because my youngest sister graduates from her college in like a month. So oh, we're about to yeah. all be done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, so someone asked me recently about something financial and I'm like, yeah, I'm, Oh, I remember it's this group that I'm with and they're like, you know, I'm spending a lot less money. And I'm like, yeah, me too. And I said, but mine is because I'm freaked out about <laughs> all the bills that are coming. Um, but yeah, it, yes. it will, it will be fun. She's done, she's done a great for herself. And so she's put us, she's put herself in a really good position to succeed and it will be fun. Yeah. It's, and you have two children, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've got another yeah. daughter at, who's a sophomore. She's got two more years at home. You know, the, the youngest one, the oldest one got to spend two years with us before the youngest one came along. And that was amazing. That was so much fun. Now the youngest one's going to get to spend two years with us. And she's, she's the one who mom says is a daddy's girl and I'll, I'll own that. So I'm kind of looking forward to a couple of years with that too. So, so she'll go fun. to Minnesota for sure. <laughs> I highly doubt she will actually. She said I'm going someplace warm and that's the bottom line. And so uh, we'll see. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. <laughs> At least she knows what she wants. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cool. Well, so I actually wanted to give a shout out for my down zone to my friend, Kevin Klinkenberg, who is a regular guest on this show. Oh, yeah. He'll actually be speaking with me at the Strong Towns gathering. At the National Gathering? I know. I'm yes. really psyched. Yeah. Well, so he launched a podcast that I've been listening to this week called the Messy City Podcast. And there's a recent interview with I think it's Tim Bussey. Hopefully I'm getting that name right. But he was the town architect or is the town architect and the co-creator of Newtown St. Charles, which is this traditional neighborhood development that's in the greater St. Louis metro area. And next time I go to St. Louis, I'm going to visit. It is actually kind of far away from where I grew up, which is in Wildwood, which nobody knows what that is. But it's... um like 45 minutes away, but I'm going to go and take a bunch of pictures because it's really, really well done. This new town area, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but it's like, like all of the buildings are gorgeous and there's all different types. And it was really cool to listen to his interview and have him talk about the process of putting it all together and kind of taking this large swath of land and planning it out and planning the buildings and even, you know, giving thought to how the buildings touch the ground and these really, really particular details that actually make it, I think a lot of TND projects kind of get criticism because people feel like it looks like the Truman show, which the Truman show was filmed in a TND project but this one, I, I feel like there's a lot of variety in it. And there is like a sense of messiness when you just look at Google Street View. I I think it was really well done. It's not too perfect, which is cool. So we'll see how the experience is when I go in person. 
and that that changes my perspective beyond just looking on Google Earth. I'm checking out the episodes here. The second one is Talking the Original Green and More with Steve Mozan. And it's, yeah. an hour, it's an hour and 10 minutes, which means they got about four hours worth of Steve Mozan in it because he talks ridiculously <laughs> fast. He's one of my favorite all-time guys, you know. Yeah, his interview was great. Oh, yeah, it'd be amazing. So I subscribe to this podcast. This sounds this sounds fantastic. Kevin's yeah, I told, I told Kevin he needs to have longer interviews, like uh, three yeah. hours. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah, nice. I can listen to some of these folks um, for a lot longer than an hour. But, yeah, so shout out to, to Kevin. Great great podcast. So I'm a new subscriber. I'm pretty excited about it. There's not a lot of podcasts in this world. Um, so yeah, if there's, if there's ever new ones, I'm excited to listen to them. There's a lot of podcasts. There's not a lot of great podcasts in this world. There's not a lot of great. Yeah. And this Kevin's is, is very good. It has some great, great people on it and great interviews. So. Well, I'll tell you what else is good. Upzoned when you're when you're when you're on it, Abby. Upzoned is fantastic. Yeah, Upzoned is number one podcast ever. <laughs> it is. I'm all in. I'm all in for that. It's it's better when I'm not here, but it's always good when you're here. So, yes, you're only a guest now, Chuck. I'm a guest. Now. Only... <laughs> I'm happy to be a guest. I'm a guest in your world. That's all good. Yeah, it's just we're just all <laughs> living in my world here. Um, okay, cool. Well, we'll end it there. Thanks for joining me today, Chuck. Always good to see you. Um, looking forward to learning what college your daughter's going to go to. That's super exciting. So yeah, uh, have a great weekend and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care.